there's a, I want to talk about hope this morning, and there's something about hope that has the power to enable us to persevere through hard things. And we know this intuitively. I'm, I'm sure we're not the only parents who have done this, but uh, when it came time for a difficult dentist appointment or a difficult uh, immunization, uh, we would utilize the hope of a toy or an ice cream cone or a sucker or whatever to get them through it, right? That, and, and a lot of times that really worked. The idea of this unpleasant experience, I'm about to go in and get this vaccination or go to this dentist appointment, I'm not too excited about it. The thought that, okay, on the other side, is I'm getting an ice cream, was a, was a big enough hope to get the children through those few moments. Well, uh, I'm going to tell this story, and I did get permission to tell this story, but sometimes an ice cream cone isn't really a big enough hope. Alyssa, our daughter, who is sweet and very strong-willed like her dad, is uh, when she was turning six, we were going to the Congo together as a family uh, to visit Eli. And doing so, you had to have a yellow fever shot to actually get to the Congo. Uh, they won't let you out, off the plane without it. They, want, they recommended a whole host of vaccines, <clears throat> but that was one you had to have. And so we know, uh, and I, had, I was the one who always took her to get her vaccination appointments. I knew very well how little she liked these vaccinations. And I knew that this yellow fever one was actually a really painful shot. And, uh, and so uh, I, in anticipation for that, I set before her the hope, uh, we're upgrading from an ice cream cone and a lollipop. We're going to, a, we're going to Walmart. You're getting whatever tool you want, okay? You get through this one, that's the hope on the other side. Well, we go in there, her, her big brother goes in first, toughs it out, it did hurt, he had a tear come down his eye, but he made it through fine. She saw that tear and it was the end of the road for her. <laughs> and um, whatever strength a six-year-old could have, it took all my strength to hold her down. Literally, this was the, the travel nurse realized we had to get this, so we had one shot at it, uh, which meant I had to wrap her up and hold her. Someone else grabbed her arm, and then they, they got the shot in. And uh, it was not a pleasant experience. And uh, she had the audacity, much like her dad would, at, afterwards to say, so, we're going to get that toy now? And uh, I won't let you know how I responded after that. But the, the reality is, is it's not all the time uh, that a ice cream cone's big enough. And the point is this, is that for the most difficult things in life, we need a big hope to help us persevere. A hope that's big enough to face the situation that we're in. And one of the things that takes place in Ecclesiastes as you run this long and windy road through the whole book is by the end you get to the end and you realize you need a big hope to face some of the challenges that the teacher has outlined in Ecclesiastes. And so our first three sermons are kind of setting up a framework for where we're going in Ecclesiastes. And so the first one uh, we talked about was the quest. And we talked about this teacher in Ecclesiastes is set out to figure out what is worthwhile in this world to live for. He wants to find out what's real gain. And by real gain, we mean that when life's in the end and you're cashing out, that you have something of real permanence and real value to hold on to. And why would he want to know that? So that he can center his life upon it. But he was going to do this quest under one condition that is really critical to understand the whole book. And it was in this phrase, under the sun. Uh, and really what that phrase meant is that he was going to go after this quest and factor out God. He was going to see all that this world had to offer apart from God to see what was worthwhile to revolve your life around. That's the quest. And the futility, the conclusion of this quest for gain in life under the sun or factoring out God is futility. And what he meant by that 
is that ultimately what takes place in this world is there's a collision. One of those collisions is, is, is in us when we go after these different pursuits in life, whether work or, or wealth or family, you name it, you fill it in. And we want that pursuit to be gained for us, to give us a true, a true sense of permanence and value in this world. There's going to be a collision that takes place. That pursuit can't do that. And what we feel on the other side of that is futility. Or he also talks about this collision of, of really harsh realities in life, that sin has left this world broken and shackled decay, so there's things we can't control in life. We don't know what to do with the injustice and oppression that we see all around us. We can't stop aging and death. And so because of these collisions, what he describes is that, is that all things are futile. What he means by that, it's like a puff of smoke, that it's real, it's true, there's substance, but the moment you try to grasp life and make it something that lasts for you, it's like a chasing after the wind. There's nothing there. And that's how he described it. But that's not the end of the story. For us as Christians, we came to the end of talking about that futility last week and said we can lament. We don't have to pretend like these things don't exist in the world, that difficulties aren't ahead of us, but we can lament them knowing that there's a hope. And that's the last part of our framework. So quest, futility, hope that we're going to talk about today. That the teacher wasn't done at the end of the story to say life is futile. He's going to give a reflection, and that's our passage today. And in this reflection, we're going to taste the hope when we recognize who God is and our relationship to him. So our big picture summary, where we're going today, what I'm praying for us is this, is that our hope in a broken and futile world is that God is big enough to quench our thirst, and he's big enough to make all things right. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, um, we acknowledge that there are a lot of difficult realities in this world that all of our efforts can't fix. And we also acknowledge that there are uh, things that we're after in life that we struggle to find uh, a quench for the thirst that we have. We gather this morning, God, because we want to hear from you on how you are big enough to quench those thirsts and make all things right. So would you do what we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive for us this morning. God, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we are coming in this morning. As you see us and know us, it's your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin with God is big enough to quench our thirst for gain. We're going to see this in verses 11 through 13. So we'll review it again. It says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of uh, anything beyond these of making many books there is no end and much study is weariness to the flesh. And then verse 13, the end of the matter is this, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. So the goad here, if you were in our Ecclesiastes study, we looked at a different version that taught, they refer to those as cattle prods, and that's what they are. A, a cattle prod would use, a farmer would use that to get an animal to move in the direction it wants us to go for its benefit. It's good. It is painful, but it is for the end good goal of that animal, right? Well, our shepherd, God, is using the book of Ecclesiastes, this gathered wisdom, to prod us in direction. He's trying to wake us up to some things. And last week we saw that he was prodding us to recognize the collision of limited pursuits and our desires for gain. That the pursuits in this life, whatever they may be, are limited in their ability to fulfill the thirst that we have for something more. Our thirst is for the infinite and it collides with finite pursuits and it leads us, leaves us with nothing to grasp. There's a quote from Mike Cosper. He's in used to be uh, a part of the staff of Sojourn Church in Louisville. Now he's on staff with Christianity Today. He said this in a book of essays about kind of our culture. He says, the imminent frame 
And when he says the imminent frame, that's a philosophical idea that basically refers to life under the sun, of life factoring out God. He said it's ultimately a dissatisfying place to live because it shackles the human heart inside a world that's simply too small for it. Our longing for transcendence can't be squelched, nor can it be satisfied. So practically for our our use, he's getting across that wealth and work and wisdom, relationships, all these things, they're just too small to us. us. And so if we reduce our life to that's it, we'll be shackled in a sense of futility. And that is what the shepherd wants us to see. And then verse 13, and we're going to focus on this and highlight a few of the specific phrases in this. This is his conclusion. After this request, this is the final reflection. He says the end of the matter. So he concludes that after this quest, that in the end, what's worthwhile is to fear God and keep his commands. Now, wait, earlier in chapter 12, he said, this is everything, all life is futile. So is he delusional? Is that what's happening here? The beginning of the chapter, he said, all life is futile. And here at the end of the chapter, he's saying the end of the matter is that we fear God, keep his commands. No, remember the distinction. In the quest is to find what's worthwhile under the sun with factoring out God. All things are futile. But here now, when you reflect on God being central in all things, all things now matter. That's what he's getting at. If you wrestle with life under the sun, then it is futile. But when you reorient your understanding of the world to include the God who created all things and his work in all things, it begins to make sense. And his concluding exhortation is, fear God and keep his commands. So when we hear that, in our culture, fear, we think of being afraid primarily. Uh, in the Old Testament world, we talked a lot about this when we went through our Proverbs series, fear God is very different than that. It would be a joyful awe. There's a commentator named Sidney Greedinus says this, to fear God is to take God seriously, to acknowledge him in our lives as the highest good, to revere him, to honor and worship him, to center our lives on him. That's at the core of what it means to fear God. So to fear him is for him to be central, to live in this sense of joyful awe of who he is. And he says this is the whole duty of man, meaning we're made in his image. And so the essence of our humanity is to live in right relationship with who God is. If we're made in his image and we try to factor him out of life, things won't work out well because that's not how we've been designed. We've been designed for our lives to center upon who he is. And so what he's concluding here as the end of his quest is that this is our hope. It's in fearing God. So how did he arrive at that? I mean, like, how do you come to the end of it and say fearing God is where you ought to go now? Well, I want to give you an analogy that I think uh, helps put, put before us why this is the case. And it's the analogy of the solar system. So our sun is at the center of the solar system, and everything is kept in orbit around the sun, right? Well, if you were to pull the sun out and you were to put, let's say, the earth at the center of the solar system, it ain't going to go so well. Everything, all, everything in orbit is going to mess up. All the planets are going to start floating off, and they might end up crashing. Who knows? But it will collapse. The solar system functions with the sun as central. And the reason why the solar system functions with the sun as central is because it, the sun is big enough to have a gravitational pull that's large enough to keep all things in orbit. That's the reason why. It's big enough to handle it. Its size produces the functional pull that holds all things in place. And the point is this. When we try to make you name whatever pursuit in this life, gain for us and put it at the center of our solar system, 
things aren't going to work out. Things aren't going to orbit very well. So in many places in my life, work has become the pursuit of gain for me. And I put it at the center of my solar system. And you know what's interesting? Two things happen when that takes place. At first, it seems to work out okay. But pretty soon after, two things happen. One, it's not really quenching the, 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 the thirst that I have. That's one major thing that happened. But another thing that happens is that all the other pursuits get out of whack after that. And the first thing that comes crashing is my family, right? And then my rest and how I steward my body. All these things begin to come crashing because work isn't big enough to be at the center of the solar system. You, you see where I'm going with this? It can't hold all things in orbit. Yet, when God has been central, not only am I filled, but I can actually enjoy the other pursuits that God has put before me. Life is to be meant in joyful awe of God for him to be central. And so the conclusion of this quest is that only God is big enough to hold the weight for our thirst of gain. We've got this thirst for the infinite. Only God is big enough to quench that thirst. That's the picture here that we get. That after this, after this quest, what he comes to the conclusion of is joyful awe of God is the only thing that will bring you the hope and meaning you long for. But he's also meaning this, that it doesn't mean that all the other pursuits of life, your relationships, your work, money, all these things don't matter. He's saying that when you try to make them central, they can't deliver. But when God is central, you begin to experience how all the other things matter in right proportion. They actually do have value. They actually do have purpose. They actually do, can be enjoyed in the proper way if the right thing is at the center of the solar system and only God is big enough to hold that place. That's the conclusion. That's the hope that Ecclesiastes is giving us. And we're going to spend more time on this at the end of the sermon series, but that's a little taste of where we're going. And so there's great hope in living in joyful awe of God. But the other one is this, is that God is big enough to make all wrong things right. Again, let's go back to verse 11 and more specifically verse 14. So verse 11, just to reflect here, the words of the wise are again like goads, like many nails firmly fixed or the collective sayings that are given by one shepherd. And he concludes in verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So again, our shepherd is using the wisdom of Ecclesiastes to prod us and wake us up. What we saw last week is to harsh realities in this world. So we wrestle with this collision that took place uh, last week that we've got expectations of life, but they collide with some harsh realities. And one of those harsh realities is time and chance, that our expectations with life collide with the reality that we're out of, we're not in control of so many of the difficult things in this life, right? So many of the trauma that you and I face in our, our world is because when and where we were born into the family origin we were born into. Zero control over that, Right? Zero control whether or not certain cells in our body mutate and cause cancer. Zero control on whether the driver driving down the road is looking at their phone and swerves into our uh, lane. So many devastating effects of things in this world that we have no control over. The teacher wants to surprise us with that, to get our attention with that. Injustice and oppression, despite our education, our money, our freedom, injustice and oppression remain. And it often feels like it's winning. We talked about the collision with aging and death. 
And ultimately, we cannot evade the worst enemy of all, and that's death. That our bodies and minds collide with time, and we won't win. And the teacher is coming across to us, and he's prodding us with this thought, that these are inescapable realities in the world in which we live. And so you can follow Jesus. You, he can be central in your life, and you will not escape these realities. They come upon us all. And so what is our hope in the midst of these? And the, these realities are many of the reasons why the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says life is futile apart from God. Well, Ecclesiastes is telling us that there's a God who will bring every deed into judgment. And we're going to spend more time on this later in the sermon series. But for now, I want us to see two reasons why this is a hope for us this morning. And the first one is this, is that God sees and knows. Notice it says here that he brings every secret thing, whether good or evil, into light. And so if you're hiding something, that's a terrifying thought. But if you're justified before God, you're righteous before him, and he's your father, this is a very comforting thought. Let me give you an analogy. So our family went skiing recently, and uh, it was the first time. Noel and I have skied a few times. It's the first time for our kids. And, uh, and so it's a busy... Uh, ski lift and a lot of things going on. And so as we're coming down, before we come down the mountain, Bradley, almost every time at the top of the mountain says, dad, you going to go down with me? And I'm like, yes, son, I'm, I'm going to go down with you. And he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go fast, dad. I'm going to go real fast. It's like, I'll, I'll be right there with you all along the way. And sure enough, he'd go down and, you know, at his age, he's eight and he didn't have ski poles. So he's just flying down just like this, down the mountain, just gliding, just weaving through folks a little at a time. And, uh, and he, and here, here's the point. He may not always see where I was at on the slopes, but I saw him. And I would weave around him and come back behind him. And I would notice when he needed encouragement, when he needed a little direction, when I saw some things he was coming upon that he didn't see. I, I would be able to come and give encouragement for what I was seeing is doing well. I could maybe warn him on watching out up ahead where something's coming your way. And I would stop if there was a need that he had. And here's what's also interesting. Nobody else on the slope besides our family cared about this eight-year-old and what he was doing out there weaving out of it, but I did. And so I noticed even all the little things he was doing. And you know, this analogy breaks down because I can't keep others from colliding with them, and I, I can't, uh, you know, I'm not the best skier in the world, so there were several times I almost busted it trying to look back and see where he was at. Uh, but the point is this. If you're doing life under the sun, factoring out God, and you collide with these harsh realities— it can be unbelievably disheartening. But the truth is this, is that we've got a God that even though sometimes he feels distant and sometimes he feels that he's not there, he is. And he sees and knows everything his children are working through in life. He sees the good and the hard things. The good he rejoices in, he delights in. We, we talked about the mundane moments we always deal with in life that it's like, if, if, do they matter? No one else knows they're going on. God sees and knows. All the difficult things I'm experiencing, and no one seems to be able to validate my pain. God understands what it is. That's the picture we get here. God is a king who will judge. He knows what his children are facing and going through. And there's a power in that. There's a hope in that. The teacher in Ecclesiastes has helped us to see that without God, it seems that nothing matters. But with God, everything matters because he sees and knows all things. So it's the first aspect of him being uh, the king and judge that brings us hope. 
But we also see in this passage here that God will make all things right. That's part of him being judge. And the Psalms paint a rich picture of this. And I want to look at Psalm 96, 11 through 13, that takes this idea of God being judge. Because when we think about judge, we think primarily of Bruce Petrie over here, right? Bruce, you're a great guy, but none of us really want to be in the courtroom with you, right? That's the reality you face. Uh, but in the Old Testament, the Israelites had a different picture of God being judge. And we see it come out here in Psalm 96. It says this, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all who fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then, then, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So Psalm 96, among many other Psalms, present this reality that God is a king who judges the earth, and it's a glorious reality. The, the sense you get out of this psalm is not terror, but joy that God is going to come and bring justice to this earth. And you look further ahead in the storyline of the Bible, and you get to Revelations 20 and 21. We're not going to read it, but I would encourage you to go there, and you get the sense that Jesus is the one who's actually going to come and return. And he's going to judge all things. He'll determine what is righteous and unrighteous. And he's going to end all oppression and injustice and pain and suffering and bring into light all that has come to pass. And he is going to make it all things right. And so what's at the core of why the psalmist is filled with joy at this thought? Well, when we face insurmountable odds, when we face injustices that don't seem to go away, what we need is someone big enough who can make it all right. And this is the very reason why you teach kids in elementary school, right? If you get a kid bullying you, where do you go? First thing you ask them to stop. Okay, that doesn't work. Next thing you go to the teacher. You go to the principal. Why? Because they're big enough to handle and do something about the problem, right? That's the image, the picture here. And so, correction on the analogy. Bruce would be a great joy to us if he can bring resolution to the problem we have, right? That's the idea here. In the picture that Ecclesiastes has given us, is this. God is a king who is big enough to make all wrong things in this world right. He's big enough to hold us amidst the suffering that we have no control over. He's big enough to bring into judgment all the injustice and impression of this world uh, and make it right. He is big enough to sustain us as death stalks us. And he's big enough that even though these things will happen to every one of us, they will not be the end of the story. Although every one of us has a sense of the shackles of decay because of the brokenness of the world upon us today, there will come a time when that, those shackles will not define our reality. And that's the hope he lands on in the end of this book. And so our hope in this broken world is that God is big enough to quench our thirst for the infinite, and he's big enough to make all wrongs things right. So where do we go from here? Well, the Bible is, is one grand storyline. And Ecclesiastes and the teacher's quest can't be separated from the person of Jesus because Jesus actually is the fulfillment of this quest. And when we see the work that he has done for us on the cross and we see life through those lenses, he becomes the embodiment of the hope we've just talked about. And so as we close, I want us to fix our gaze on him. And so when he walked this earth, the Apostle John recorded some, a series of self-declosures that Jesus made about himself. 
And uh, theologians refer to these as the I am statements of Christ. And these really do connect richly to this message of Ecclesiastes. And, And these aren't necessarily all different things about Jesus, but if you think about Jesus as a diamond, every angle you turn, you get a new look at his beauty. And that's what these these images are. And so I want us to gaze at them. Jesus was born into the futility of this world. And all the harsh realities that we experienced, he embodied and dealt with himself. And in the midst of those, this is who he proclaimed himself to be. He proclaimed that he is the light of the world who would shine into the darkness and reveal the brokenness of the world in its pursuits. That he is the way, the truth, and the life that would cut through the futility and show each one of us the pathway to the meaning. That he would be the way means he would be the way that our sin and our shackles of decay could be dealt with so that we could stand before him in judgment free of sin. That he is the gate through which we would be reconnected to the one. We were separated to the one. The one we ultimately thirst for. He's the bread of life that would fill our starving hearts. He is the true vine that connects us to God, ongoing nourishment, and centers our lives upon Him so that we could turn and be a light to this world. That He is the good shepherd who is guiding us. He's being near to us in these harsh realities we can't escape. That He gives meaning and purpose to them. That Jesus is the good shepherd actually walked through these He was born in oppression. He had to run as an exile. He saw how power corrupts. He dealt with every bit of that. And as our good shepherd walks with us before it, right? And he is the resurrection and the life who ultimately conquered these harsh realities so that they would not be the end of the story for us as a church. Do you believe this? Is he where you find gain? If you're like me and you chase after other pursuits to be gained for you, is he the medicine that that heals you and brings you back to the true hope? Is he your anchor that holds you up as you collide with these harsh realities of life? Grace Church, what I want us to see and taste this morning is that Jesus sees and knows the futility in which you live every day. And he is big enough to quench your thirst for gain. And he is big enough to conquer all the harsh realities and make all the wrong things in your life right. It won't be the end of the story. Let's pray. Father, who are we to sit here and speak of this privilege of you entering this broken world to give us hope? There's not one of us that comes in here that is worthy of your love, that is worthy of you speaking into this world, that is worthy of you pursuing us and rescuing us. But you have, God. And I pray that as we close in worship that that we would taste a little bit more clearly how amazing this hope is. That we would this thirst we have for gain would get a little bit more quenched in seeing who you are. And I pray no matter what harsh realities we're colliding with in life right now, would this be a real hope to us that Jesus entered this broken world, that he knows these harsh realities, and that he's walking with us in the midst of it, and he will make all wrong things right in the end. Help us with that hope, navigate the futility of this world, and move out as a church to be a light. It's your name we pray. Amen.